Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and today we'll be featuring a recording of a live webinar discussion of the recent very well-received book, Middle Class Shanghai by Chung Li. Chung is director and senior fellow at the John L. Thornton China Center at Brookings. Chung grew up in Shanghai during the Cultural Revolution before coming to the U.S. to study at Berkeley. He then got a Ph.D. in political science from Princeton. We had a fascinating discussion about this city that has historically been at the center of the West's relations with China, from the earliest 20th century when it was known as a cosmopolitan gateway to today housing many multinationals China head offices. It's also the core of the vibrant Yangtze Delta economy and the home to one of China's two stock markets. Compared to the more formal political center of Beijing, Shanghai has been described as a pragmatic, entrepreneurial, and innovative city. One of the things I appreciated about Chung's book is that it aims to foster understanding and so reorient U.S.-China relations to a more mutually productive path. The subtitle of the book is Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement, a sentiment which in part runs counter to the more aggressive stance coming out of Washington and Beijing for the last four to five years. We discuss Chung's many insights about China's society and culture as exemplified by the middle class in Shanghai, and how this group helps shape the country's economics and politics. This includes topics such as the influence of returnees, the vibrant art scene, and also the influence of those who have lived and worked in Shanghai on China's central government. Overall, Chung advocates that American policymakers should not lose sight of the dynamism present in China today, and that understanding and engaging with the diversity of the Chinese population can contribute to a bettering of U.S.-China relations. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. So, Chung, why don't we start a bit simply? You know, books like this take many, many years to write, take so much dedication I guess the first thing I want to know is, why did you decide to write a book on this specific topic? Well, Chris, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your overly generous introduction. I wish my mother were here, and she would believe every word that you said about me and about the book. Now, I'm truly honored and humbled to have this uh, conversation with you. You are outstanding scholarship on institution and governance, business and society, your intimate knowledge and expertise of China, especially Shanghai, and your active role as a public intellectual is evident by uh, your hosting many public events and podcasts have enormously 
shape my research and understanding of our rapidly changing world. Also, congratulations, Chris, for your new and exciting appointment as an indoor chair in Chinese studies at the University of Cambridge Business School. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you so much. Now, I also want to thank you. Okay,、um, you know it's really big,、uh, big again for Cambridge. Now, I also want to thank、uh, SubChina, especially our mutual friend Anna Chen, for hosting this webinar, for your unique platform in providing comprehensive news and analysis of China.、Uh, your website, SubChina, which I visit almost every day, stated that SubChina. Aims to, I quote here, inform and con- connect a global audience regarding the business, technology, politics, culture, and society of China. It is perhaps not a coincidence, coincidence that these five words—business, technology, politics, culture, and society—are also the key search words in my book on Shanghai. Now, Chris, to your question about why I wrote this book. Let me briefly mention three factors: personal, professional, and the policy concerns. Now that、uh, really these three drove me to embark upon the and also complete this book. First, personal. Ernest Hemingway once wrote that if you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris, is a movable feast. My life has also been a movable feast, although my feast began in a city known in some quarters as the Paris of the East. Now, as Chris, you just mentioned, I was born and raised in Shanghai. In that city, I experienced both the dark era of the Red Terror during the Cultural Revolution as a young boy. And my family suffered greatly, and also the happier and more promising times of Deng Xiaoping's economic reform and opening up in the early 1980s as a college student. Shanghai, along with the prospects of her future trajectory, remains close to my heart. Secondly, the professional or academic reason, I'm intrigued by the multiple identities of Shanghai. Namely, local, national, and the cosmopolitan identities—they are all dynamic, mutually reinforce each other, while also retaining independent value within particular contexts. Shanghai's cultural dynamics stress neither cultural clash, as someone argue, nor cultural convergence, but the cultural coexistence and the cultural diversity. My study covers the range of the higher education, avant-garde art, architecture, elite formation, and the elite attitude, and also legal profession, showing that the impact of transnationalism, and also the value of multiculturalism. Now, Chris, as you know, these are among the most important issues in today's world. And finally, and thirdly,、um, policy concerns. The ongoing policy and political discourse on China in the United States today disproportionately focus on Beijing, on the Chinese authoritarian、uh, system, on the China threat, on the fatalistic view, often treating the most populous country in the world in a monolithic way. My fear is that the Washington and the Beijing are heading toward a dangerous path, increasingly shaped by a zero-sum game mindset. On both sides, and nasty and demagogic actions to demonize the other side. Examples examples include calling the other side a genocidal regime and blaming the other side for producing the COVID nineteen virus. Now, the overall theme of my book is Shanghai is not a monolithic entity, and certainly China is not either. Middle class Shanghai actually reveals. China's unsettled future, because even Shanghai embodies what I call two tails of a city. For example, Shanghai can serve as the vanguard of the world, middle-class worldly voices, views, and values. Yet, 
This city may increasingly become the showcase of China's growing nationalism and mercantilist global outreach. Now, my point here is that we should place Shanghai's future and China's future in an ever-changing domestic and international context. It is neither predetermined nor stagnant. Back to you. I'm sorry that I gave the long answer to your excellent question. No, no, no. It's uh, it's good at the beginning to have a broad overview, and I'm really looking forward to digging into all those uh, different points. But I'd first like to actually focus on two specific elements. First, why focus on Shanghai? And another, more about the middle class in general. You know, as I think about Shanghai, clearly, as you mentioned, very different than Beijing. Also thinking about places where I spend a lot of time, like Chengdu, second tier cities, also very different. You know, Shanghai is such a unique Chinese city, the most cosmopolitan, home of multinationals. Also, the new CPC Museum just opened up, showing a very strong influence and ties to the party. What do you think about all these idiosyncrasies? Is this a strength or weakness of focusing on Shanghai? I guess I'm interested in what you think the general lessons we can draw about China from just focusing on Shanghai. Well, um, let me first address your, uh, your first question and also uh, about the comparison between Beijing and Shanghai, also called Haipai and Jingpai. Now, um, your questions uh, here really echo a long-standing view in Shanghai studies that Shanghai might be seen as the other China. You know, we know the literature, the other China. Historically, Shanghai's rise as a cosmopolitan city coincided with the decline and disintegration of the Middle Kingdom of the Opium War. Over the past century, a recurrent conception of Shanghai has been that a city could be a lens through which one sees a distorted vision of China. Now, while these views have some truism, as I also um, discussed in the beginning, Shanghai's designation as the other China that sees us, I believe, can be challenged on two fronts. First, despite a strong Western influence on the city, Shanghai has always remained an inherently Chinese city. Shanghai was always China's Shanghai. In fact, Shanghai has long been called uh, China's window or gate to the outside world or the so-called bridge between the East and West. It was Shanghai that introduced the world to China, and it was also Shanghai that brought China into the world. This certainly happened in the last century, uh, including the most recent decades. Now, second uh, front, Shanghai has set a pace for the country's social economic development since the 1990s, when the Chinese leadership from Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin and also uh, 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 even now, Deng Shanghai as the head of the dragon aimed to transform the Yangtze Delta region into an economic powerhouse. Many important uh, phenomena, as you know so well, uh, in the reform era, the resurgence of commercial society, the establishment of stock market, the property uh, booms, were either initiated in Shanghai or otherwise affect the city in a deeper and direct way. Now, Shanghai is the cradle of both the new middle class and the foreign education movement in the reform area, especially the returnees to China. So middle class and the returnees to China, these are the two groups on which my book focuses on. Now, uh, middle class expansion you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, about the difference between, uh, you know, other cities like Chengdu or other, and the first tier cities and the second tier or third tier cities. And uh, I think that this is happening or happened in the past uh, decade or so. According to a study conducted by Dominique Baden, um, the former head of the McKinsey and the now Canadian ambassador to China and his colleague at the McKinsey, uh, they wrote a report a few years ago. Um, uh, they documented that in 2002, 40% of China's relatively small urban middle class live in the four tier, four tier one cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Chen, uh, uh, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen. But 20 years later, next year, you know, 2022, they, they forecast the proportion of the China's middle class uh, that uh, uh, lives in these, uh, those mega uh, cities is expected to drop from the 40% to 
20 years ago to about 16%. So instead, 76% of the middle class will live in the tier 2 and the tier 3 cities. So, of course, Shanghai differs from Beijing and Shenzhen. In, uh, I would be happy to elaborate I mean, particular uh, difference between Beijing and Shang- Shanghai. Now, also, you mentioned about some other cities like Chengdu. I mean, uh, Chengdu certainly is the capital of uh, Chinese gourmet food. And the Chengdu has a leisure culture, diff- also different from Shanghai. Now, finally, about Jinpai and uh, Haipai. Shanghai is to China what New York City is to the United States. So based on that logic, you can say probably Beijing is similar to Washington because the capital is a political center. But Shanghai was never a political center. So people have illuminated the difference between Jingpai and Haipai for almost a century, you know, it's in the literature. So in contrast to mainstream Beijing culture, sometimes characterized as the elitist, conservative, aristocratic, and bureaucratic, many Chinese people describe Shanghai culture, Haipai, as a pragmatic, entrepreneurial, innovate, innovative, uh, leisurely, uh, holistic, and forward-looking. Now, Chris, you and your viewers can tell I come from Shanghai with all these outrageous biases. But that's the, uh, uh, the conventional wisdom. Thanks so much, Chung. Very, very useful to hear about Shanghai and its uniqueness and how that's really important to understand how it contrasts with all these other cities that you discussed. I also want to dig a little bit more into the other part of the title, middle class, and what that means. You know, there's many ways to define middle class. It could be just income level, could be cultural and social experiences, and other sort of sets of, of, of factors. Can you say a little bit more about how you identified the middle class, your object of study for the book? So certainly it's a very important question. And uh, the middle class uh, is an inherently flexible concept everywhere in the world. My study, like those of other scholars in China and elsewhere, combines factors such as income, wealth, occupation, education, social status, and also self-recognition, this combination of factors together to define this social economic group. Um, so I do not want to go into detail because my book has actually a couple of chapters on that, uh, that the detail, the debate, and etc. You know, someone argued that they use an absolute term. Uh, so between 10 US dollars to 100 dollars per day, but these are subject to change. And also look at the income. It's not good enough because some people may not have income, but they are very rich, particularly property bubble, uh, in China, maybe a property development. Because as we know that the average, uh, price of the property which actually, nine, uh, you know, 5 million people, um, uh, 91% of Shanghainese own, some people even own two properties. The average property is uh, 1.2 million US dollars. So that's put that income. Now, but the one thing I think that uh, it's, a, it's a fact that they widely uh, agree in China and outside China, you know, 40 years ago, uh, um, um, you know, particularly the data is 2019, um, after China began its economic reform, you know, after 40 years. National GDP had grown 60 times larger and the per capita income 25 higher. GDP per capita has increased from about 1,000 in 2001, 20 years ago, to now 10,500 in 2020. So in, uh, also the Chinese government announced uh, last March during the Lianghui that it expected to reach 30,000 US dollars by 2035. Now in Shanghai, per capita GDP ex- already exceeded, exceeded 23,000 last year, 2020. Now middle class, as you really point out very, uh, uh, you know, uh, insightfully, is a diverse, diverse a lot, including Shanghai middle class. In terms of occupational com- uh, composition, Chinese middle class comprises three major clusters, I call clusters. The first is the economic cluster composed of small business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, real estate and stock speculators, and foreign and joint venture um, employees. You, you really study, you know, have some kind of a path-breaking study of that group, Chinese entrepreneurs, innovation, etc. The second is a political cluster populated by low-level government officials, um, office clerks, and the state sector managers, and yes, some lawyers and etc. It's also belong to that. I mean, if you 
have the affiliation with the government, etc. Now the third cluster is oriented around the the culture and the educational, and consists of media figures, academics, teachers, and other intellectuals. Now let me add uh, that the these really members of middle class in Western countries also as diverse in terms of family backgrounds, occupational identities, educational attainment, as their counterparts in China. So it's not uniquely Chinese. Now, the middle class in Western countries is also subdivided into many groups. But here raised the issue that you imply is the issue of cohesion, whether really there's only one middle class or how to deal with these differences. Now, for many Western scholars, the concept of the middle class should involve civil society and the core middle class values. I actually agree with this conceptual notion. Despite the fact that the middle class um, is a diverse lot in China, I believe that they more or less share the following core middle class values and the attitudes. Let me very quickly go through this. Appreciate that the middle class lifestyle, protect the private, uh, private property rights, they, you know, they don't want the government, you know, to go back, back to state or deprivatization, of course. Support the policies that promote education, particularly I mean Chinese. Advocate for measures that safeguard the environment. Care deeply about the food and the drug safety. A lot of protests by middle classes on these issues. And they resent the government's so-called great firewall online. Even some low-level government officials, when we talk to, they are really very, very critical about the government censorship. In the, you cannot use Google search. You cannot uh, do these kind of things. So they, again, they also demand the government accountability and the transparency. They look favorably toward economic liberalization. This may differ from uh, some other Western countries because Chinese middle class benefit greatly from economic liberalization, not like a. Uh, some middle class members in the West actually they did not benefit that much or even uh, shrinking the middle class, uh, you witness. And finally, for Chinese, they also uh, hold pride for China's rise on the world stage. So actually, my book has a, a chapter on opinion surveys of retainees in Shanghai. They are not necessarily unique, but they are more cosmopolitan and less nationalistic. To a certain extent, they are more similar to their peers um, in Seattle, in, in St. Louis, and etc. Then there are preceding generations. So this is what I talk about: core uh, middle class value and also uh, uh, their attitudes. Yes. Wow, that that was a really interesting and comprehensive answer, spanning from the economic to the social, cultural, political, and even intellectual. You know, I really appreciate how you divide the middle class into those different different groups. You know, along those lines, you also start to say a little bit about returnees. And I think three of the chapters actually focus on returnees. Can you say a little bit more about why returnees are so important to the Shanghai and Chinese middle class more generally? Well, um, it's a very good question. Um, that uh, actually, that uh, one chapter, I think chapter eight of the book, I start with um, this is a chapter about impact of educational exchanges retainees in Shanghai. I look at the various groups. I begin with a question. What do the foreign people in Shanghai have in common? Now, some are born and raised in Shanghai like myself, you know, in early career. Some are new, new Shanghainese. They arrived to Shanghai, you know, during the reform era, etc. Now, these are the, um, the, the people. Let me mention some of them. Uh, internationally famous artist uh, Chen Danqing, who really painted the, the so-called the, the Tibetan series. It's a fascinating. He's a really top artist. Former Minister of Health, this is the entire country, Chen Zhu. China's most popular late-night talk show host, Jing Xing. Now she is the, uh, the, the, the boss, the owner of the Bai Le Men, you know, uh, parliament in, in Shanghai. And Asia's number one uh, venture capitalist Sun Nanpeng, based on the Western studies, is the number one venture capitalist uh, in Asia, Sun Nanpeng. And the former Shanghai Mayor Xu Kuangdi, basketball uh, guru Yao Ming, the founder of China's first opinion poll company, Yuan Yue, actually my uh, service also collaborated with Yuan Yue's uh, uh, Verizon. 
and the China's most popular medical doctor in combating COVID-19, Zhang Wenhong, who has a nickname as China's uh, doctor, you know, Ford, and the former IMF uh, deputy director Zhu Ming, they are all foreign-educated retainees, the answer is. Now, without accounting for the impact of foreign education, present-day Shanghai is incomprehensible. Now, let me just mention one, one area, higher education. I also had a couple of chapters on that. In Shanghai's higher education system, um, just to give you one set of statistics from my research, in 2019, among the top administrators of the top 10 universities in Shanghai, that included the president and the vice president, the, um, you know, the provost, 92% of them are returnees, either got their degrees from the uh, foreign countries or serve as a visiting scholar more than one year. Now, that's the definition. Now, to state the obvious, they educated uh, and they educate and influence the future generations of the Chinese middle class. So one of the things when I initially read the book that surprised me a bit, um, but after thinking about it, it made a lot of sense, was your focus on art and architecture. And I think you've even written a standalone separate article about this uh, as well. Can you say more about why understanding art and architecture in Shanghai is important to understanding the middle class? Uh, I'm glad you, uh, you, read, uh, you read the question. You know, by definition, avant-garde art is ahead of our time. Avant-garde artists work. Usually, I mean, uh, usually is first directed to at a core audience. And then it is gradually absorbed by others. Now, I actually uh, study, uh, started looking at the Shanghai's uh, avant-garde artists a couple of decades ago, almost, uh, almost 20 years ago. And uh, it shocked me early on to see the strong critical views in these artists' work, not just to single out the uh, Chinese authorities or Chinese Communist Party, but also point to globalization and its side effects and economic and demographic disparities, environmental disasters and degradation, single-minded profit-seeking, Western hypocrisy, they call, and the arrogance of Western or American hegemonic thinking. Now, this come out very, very strongly even even a couple of decades ago when, you know, we do not see, I mean, Western discourse did not talk too much about the anti-American sentiment, but it's already existing among the, 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 the avant-garde artists. Now, over time, I have come to see the general public itself absorbing the three dominant critical perspectives. One is the resentment of the, 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 the Chinese authority. Another is a resentment of capital super rich entrepreneurs. I do not want to make, give you the names of these uh, super rich. I mean, this is also like uh, in the West. And finally, is a resentment of the United States, particularly U.S. foreign policies. Now, each of these do, um, dominant powers, you know, these three, like three hegemonies, get criticized and challenged in some context, while also celebrated from time to time or supported in other contexts. So many of these reflects on China's post-colonial status, its globalized present, and its complex societal negotiations. So, um, you know, you study about social societal organizations and institutions. It's very subtle from artist community for these kind of societal negotiations. Now, Shanghai's avant-garde artists have initiated an international dialogue about the side effects, and especially the possible destructive consequences of economic realization. Now, looking at uh, these 20 years, 9-11, 1997 financial crisis, and the 2008, you know, global financial crisis, and also uh, currently in COVID-19, and also deterioration of U.S.-China relations. These are all just devastating events. So, but at the same time, they also look at the positive impact of transnationalism and the value of multiculturalism I just mentioned in the beginning. So this is a very interesting, it's itself also very diverse, right? But that helped us to understand the complicities 
and the different layers of the Chinese society and the Chinese intellectual community, including the middle class, because the, these artists, many of them, if you are not super rich, you are also middle class. Yeah. Okay, so now that we have a much better understanding of the object of your study in general, I'd like to dig in a bit more about what you said at the beginning on the importance of U.S. and China relations. Your argument in the book is that American policymakers should not lose sight of the expansive dynamism and diversity in present-day China, and that this is exemplified by middle-class Shanghai. The subtitle of your book actually reflects this. You know, the title is Middle-Class Shanghai, colon, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement is the subtitle. Can you say a bit more about this argument and why understanding this group can help the U.S. have a more constructive engagement with China? Sure. Um, the thesis of my book um, really runs a, a contrary to the prevailing views in Washington uh, regarding the failure, the so-called failure of U.S. engagement policy toward China. Now, there are several main components of these negative views. For example, viewing China as a monolithic entity, I just mentioned earlier, with no distinction between state and society, the so-called whole of society threat reflects that kind of uh, negative view. And also viewing the Chinese middle class as the political ally of the China's party state without recognizing the dynamism and the diversity, you know, I, I mentioned already several times, of this new social economic force and the transitory political role. I think it's not set, not settled maybe in the transition. Uh, and then finally, viewing the large number of PRC students and the scholars you know, in the US as a spies being weaponized by Beijing and therefore assuming bilateral educational exchange benefit only China and then un may un even undermine American supremacy and American security. Now, my book challenges these distorted views and also resulting misguided policies. The book argue it is premature to announce that the CCP engagement policy with China under the eight presidents prior to uh, President Donald Trump has failed. I certainly challenge, disagree with that uh, perception. Now, let me very quickly uh, mention that, of course, that the Chinese military at the moment, uh, they may uh, leaning towards authoritarian government, as I just mentioned earlier, sometimes they're shifting around. Many Chinese middle class members are deeply familiar with two major events in the 1990s, namely Japan's last decade of economic growth and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So some official Chinese sources have also implied that both episodes you know, were products of the American conspiracy. Now fear of a similar plot against China, you know, the, the fear of the middle class, uh, might um, ultimately be enough to tip support in favor of the Chinese Communist parties and also authoritarian rule. But this is not settled, not, the, you know, it's subject to change. I can give you uh, numerous examples. Just to give you the example of middle class protests. We already mentioned about drug and uh, food safety. But also remember this just a few years ago, there's a TV, CCTV episode under the dome, dome by uh, Cai Jing, by, by, uh, uh, I think Cai Jing is a, 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 a former CCTV anchor that immediately got like a 200 million hits because this is reflect the growing middle class resentment about the government's failure to prevent air, uh, to prevent air pollution. So therefore, they reshape the policy. And also, finally, just uh, this is not a long time ago, just a year ago, remember February last year, um, nationwide public mourning in response to the tragic death of Dr. Li Wenliang, a whistleblower who exposed the COVID, uh, you know, coronavirus at the outset of the 2019 uh, or 2020 outbreak. Now, what this is really particularly revealing, the wave of widespread grieving reflects the public's outrage, middle-class outrage, at the doctor's, uh, Dr. Li's mistreatment by authorities, will be local, or, or otherwise. So that all show the relationship is, 
um, it's ongoing. It's not settled. Uh, this is what I mentioned that it's maybe only the transitory phase. You understand they wanted to have stability, uh, maybe maintain status quo, but also uh, they have been critical about the issues they, they care, they care deeply. So it's an ongoing process. Now let me uh, end up with another example. We talk about civil society. Uh, civil society uh, related with the uh, rule of law. Of course, nowadays, uh, you know, no one talk about the, that much about the rule of law in China, uh, uh, whether rightly or, or maybe uh, unfairly. But one important things I want to share with you that the legal profession development in China is quite impressive. There's also uh, many students, um, you know, early on were sent by like a, a, a Ford Foundation or Henry Roos Foundation and many, along, many other uh, foundations to, to help the establishment of the legal profession in China, uh, especially in Shanghai. But now uh, some of the people, um, you know, domestic educated uh, law schools, uh, did not exist, or very few, extremely few, when I left China. But now there's so many law school, law departments, probably 620, uh, the, uh, uh, two years ago, the number in the whole country. But now also, those Western educated Chinese lawyers, you know, they went abroad, usually finished their uh, university education in law in China, then went abroad to study JD or the other law program. Now many of them returned to China. I have a case study in the book, talk about Jingren and uh, some of the Zhongren uh, and uh, law school. Uh, this is a, a law firm, private law firm. This is uh, nothing to do with Chinese government. They um, work in the private sector with the foreign joint venture and etc. Uh, like a, a 75 out of 112 partners are foreign educated returnees. Overwhelming majority of them got a, a uh, you know, JD degrees from the top universities, Columbia, Duke, Harvard, Berkeley, name it. And also, of course, uh, that also Cambridge, Oxford, and uh, also uh, many of them in US passed the bars in California and New York. Now that gives you some hope. You know, my point is that, uh, um, uh, again, uh, these people will use their education to push for change, first maybe economic domain, but also will expand beyond economic things. So I hope that these Western educated lawyers uh, may be instrumental in promoting both legal development in China and the cooperation across the Pacific uh, in the years to come in terms of the meet international standard and also to protect our intellectual property rights. So I'm not entirely pessimistic. So that's give you that dimension about the civil society. So the battle is ongoing. It's not over. You have the reason for pessimistic thinking. Talk about censorship. Talk about the moving about uh, even more consolidated, you know, authoritarian system. But you also see some also promising positive development. This is paradoxical. This is the nature. This is what I call uh, two tails of a city. So it's not settled, not done deal. So our policymakers should be wise. Should 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 not jump to a conclusion. Those are a really important set of points uh, and examples, I think. You know, being hard on China is one of the few areas that U.S. politicians across the party aisle can agree on. You know, both Republicans and Democrats think we need to be harder on China. Sort of like the train has left a station on that sort of topic, and people are just not thinking deeply about the situation. So, you know, these examples you give, I think, are really helpful to think about how to actually think more critically and think about the complexity a bit more. But as a follow-up, I'd like to ask you about how you'd recommend, given the train has left the station, so to speak, the media reinforces this issue, a growing popular anti-China feeling, how do you recommend those groups, particularly the politicians, can actually engage more in what you mention? For example, the Shanghai middle class as a civil society. How can the U.S. engage with that group without the involvement of the Chinese authorities? Certainly, it's true there's a rising Chinese nationalism and anti-American sentiment uh, in China and to a certain extent also in Shanghai, among Shanghai middle class. My survey, although completed a few years ago, you already see uh, some criticism about the 
the single-minded approach to China or some of the uh, racism and etc. Now, I don't need to explain to this audience why we have recently witnessed the rise of Chinese nationalism and anti-American sentiment, you know, including some of the Chinese students and scholars in the United States. Now, my book argued that uh, we should not underestimate the profound impact of cultural exchanges and enduring friendship between peoples, even at a time when the U.S.-China relationship has drastically deteriorated. So I argue constantly in the book, I mean, U.S.-China relations are not only just the state-to-state relations, but also people-to-people relations. Is a Chinese and American or American and Chinese relations. Now we, we, we should not forget that, forget that. We certainly should not demonize, uh, on the individual level. Now this was evident, um, the, the profound, uh, you know, impact of educational culture exchanges. Uh, there are numerous examples, ping pong diplomacy, American orchestra, Philadelphia orchestra visited China in 1970s, completely changed many generations and etc. Now, uh, but my book, the, the conclusion chapter actually started with, um, a story, a very touching story in my, when I first heard this, um, is the, um, widespread mourning throughout China that followed Kirby Bryant's tragic passing, tragic death. Uh, that was um, uh, January 27, 2020. This is China one day earlier than U.S. Uh, the day after the helicopter crash that killed Kirby and also uh, his daughter. Actually, his daughter speaks uh, flawless Chinese. Uh, uh, Chinese always call uh, Kirby, uh, they call Kirby rather than his Brian, uh, the last name. Uh, you know, uh, there were more than one billion web searches for Kirby's name on web on Weibo, China's Twitter. More than double the number of searches uh, for COVID-19s. That was astonishing, given that, as we know, late January, China was at the peak of the, the deadly pandemic. Now, in this period of uncertainty, or especially in the wake of the pandemic of the century, I argue, I really hope that the two largest middle-class countries in the world need to find a way to reshape their long-term engagement. So in a way, I'm glad that President Biden put the emphasis on American middle-class renew. So competition is not bad. We should have a healthy competition not uh, went to the, uh, go to the trap of the confrontation. So I think middle class, you should just in, uh, understand, we have the, all have the legitimate reason to be part of a global middle class and should be inspired by each other's um, success, should learn from each other. China certainly learn from American middle class. There's no, uh, you know, uh, argue that, but also should have empathy to really, I mean, uh, should contribute to the global economic development, not winner takes all, not just uh, at one country's uh, development at the other country's expense. Should be cynical about the uh, state capitalism, industrial policies, and uh, 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 should continue to in, um, encourage trade, uh, economic cooperation, and also uh, uh, the cooperation on international public good, um, uh, health and safety, and um, uh, particularly at the moment that the infrastructure development and the job and uh, to reduce economic disparity. So these are the areas we should find uh, uh, the way to cooperate rather than just uh, think like it's a race, uh, it's a zero-sum game. Yeah, yeah. Because of the world is so big. We, we, uh, sometimes if we, we develop a market, China's market is still huge. Americans are so wealthy in so many ways. Look at our natural resources. Look at our potential. Look at our, uh, the, the best high, uh, high educational systems, right? I mean, really inspire so many people. Now, the point that, 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 that we actually help to, you know, train China's uh, future generation. But at the same time, we can benefit from talents from China. 
But China should also uh, really uh, appreciate um, as a person I myself come from China. I'm certainly you know, forever grateful for American universities so open uh, their doors, open their hearts for foreign students like myself. But I just wish that trend will continue, not just short-sighted because of current tensions and to uh, really uh, 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 prevent us see the real positive constructive impact for these 40 years of exchanges. Now, let me also mention that one thing, because uh, if, do, you have, do I have time? One minute? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Please, please go for it. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I really uh, wanted to repeat that probably I said in a couple of occasions, other occasions. My mentor and also a colleague at the Brookings, Jeff Bader, previously worked for the Obama administration as a senior director. In 2016, actually before Trump um, uh, came to power, he already said that there's a tendency to be cynical about the U.S.-China engagement, the policy. But he argued that we should be careful. We should not treat China as an enemy. We should not just jump to conclusion that the four decades engagement was a failure because Asia Pacific, particularly in East Asia, that region, uh, maintain almost, uh, you know, five, five decades of peace. But in look at early history, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 1970s or earlier, there's a major wars, four major wars. I mean, three quarters of American life, American soldiers die. But compare with that, compare with the relative long peace in that region, it's a big achievement. So my deepest worry or fear is that kind of really successful policy because some single-minded, you know, kind of narrow-minded approach may lead to the end. So I, I wish that our policymakers, both countries, of course, should really see that big picture. So ultimately, it's not just economic or money or other things, but something more important. Actually, this is the origin when Deng Xiaoping and President Jimmy Carter started education exchanges. They already mentioned that ultimately, is for world peace. You know, when they signed agreement in 1979 in Washington, Deng Xiaoping made that uh, important remark. Uh, uh, President Jimmy Carter said the same thing. It's for peace. So still, I think it's very much in test. So I will even say that without these kind of cultural education exchanges really shape our discipline, shape our, uh, uh, you know, many ways, institutions like, uh, you know, universities, research institutes, media, and etc. with this kind of people-to-people -people integration, we're probably already in a vicious uh, uh, war. So that's a test whether positive force can prevail or whether let a small number of people or maybe military-industrial complex lead us to a terrible situation. There will be no winner because this is, will not be another Cold War. Because uh, as Dr. Kissinger said, we are equally powerful countries. There's no way to want to, no country can, um, you know, uh, uh, pretend they can win a total war. So if that's the case, so we should find a way to engage with each other. May not be the previous way, you know, China certainly take advantage. There are a lot of things China should improve. But uh, again, overall, I think that uh, we should uh, revisit our policies and then reshape what I call engagement. Yeah. This topic of how the U.S. and China can relate is really the core geopolitical, economic challenge of our time. So I really do hope many policymakers can read your book and understand the importance of recognizing people-to-people -people relations to help us move forward. You know, the last thing I want to talk about is a really interesting focus of your book, on how the Shanghai government and Shanghai politicians influence the national level. Of course, we know Jiang Zemin was party secretary of Shanghai, and there's a deep set of sort of Shanghai clique, the, the Shanghai government folks in the national government. You know, you have a whole chapter on this. Uh, it's chapter six titled From Jiang to Xi, 
the enduring power and influence of the Shanghai Gang, where you really unpack this enduring influence of Shanghai on China's national-level government. You have a number of sort of statistics and tables in there, and what surprised me is how still about 40% of the Politburo has some sort of Shanghai influence. Can you say a little bit more about that influence and also how understanding this uh, background and influence can help shape U.S. engagement with China? Well, excellent, excellent question. And before that, that, I also wanted to clarify a few things. First of all, I do not want to glorify Shanghai leaders and uh, because there are some good leaders, so maybe not so good leaders that uh, and uh, we remember, we, I mean, we should remember the Gang of Four, uh, also, uh, you know, almost all of them um, come from Shanghai or have long experience in Shanghai, right? And also that this is not uniquely only under the communist uh, government, that even before that, in the Chiang Kai-shek uh, nationalist government, there's four families also, uh, 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 you know, largely come from Shanghai. And uh, so Shanghai is uh, so important. That's why someone actually, uh, 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 I think a, a, a former uh, professor at Michigan, and you graduated from Michigan, and I think it's uh, um, uh, um, Rod Murphy, Murphy wrote a book in 1953. Um, the title is uh, Shanghai, Key to Modern China. Because uh, Shanghai is such an important, you know, economic, uh, uh, social, and um, uh, and um, to a certain extent, intellectual center is uh, too important to lose the battle in that regard. So that's why so many um, people put the resources on Shanghai and etc. But at the same time, because of cosmopolitan nature, Shanghai leaders do have some kind of characters differ from others. And um, so again, political experience, occupational background, geographical representations, and the factional affiliations are all important, just as the categories of the red states and the blue states in the United States. Do you think that's important? Of course, so important geopolitical and, uh, and uh, 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 divide. Now, the issue, the problem, I think, the U.S. studies of China, our, I mean, um, you know, field is really not in good, good shape. I do not, what do you think? That uh, because we really should study far more than the, the, at the moment. Uh, uh, of course, there's a lot of focus on, um, you know, uh, Xi Jinping or on political dissent, economic challenges and the social protests in China. These are all important, uh, don't get me wrong. But we should study far more than these things. We should study the different locality, different groups, different interest groups in China. Why? So I think the leaders from Shanghai, they form a kind of a, um, network and also you see, um, they actually have, they have become more pragmatic. And the, the Shanghai also gives them more possible politics experience. In 19, um, in later 1980s to early 1990s, Deng Xiaoping spent seven, I think seven or eight executive, conductive years, spring festival in Shanghai. And, uh, particularly in 1990, he gave a speech. He said, I made a mistake. I should really choose Shanghai as one of the economic zoom uh, 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 um, in addition to Shenzhen. So that's either what he really thought. It's we do not know, but that statement is widely known. So in the same year, he launched the Pudong development. So you can see Shanghai shape some of the leaders' views, and the Shanghai leaders in return also have some unique characteristic. During the 1997 and also later the, the crisis, like a Taiwan Street crisis, actually the leaders in Shanghai at that time, I think, uh, for example, like Zhu Rongji or, or uh, um, Xu Kuangdi, asked people, uh, Taiwanese, because there's a huge Taiwanese community in Shanghai, to stay, become, we will do business with you. So that differ from some other regions that talk about we're going to launch missiles, we're going to, I mean, I don't think it's a purely, it's a, it's a, uh, I mean, planned by Chinese government. No, this is more spontaneous. So my point is that uh, we need to better understand that the the diversity is within China, and how these kind of local features 
and uh, it's not deterministic because the Shanghai itself also uh, quite pluralistic. But uh, this will be uh, have uh, implications. But how to define this by case by case? Uh, so actually, Chinese are probably more uh, obsessed with the subculture than the uniqueness, and this is uh, um, certainly started early, much earlier in China's history. But during the Cultural Revolution, um, it's completely suppressed. You talk about the only national culture. There's no subculture, no local culture, right? So this kind of monolithic, this kind of holistic, uh, the things or conformity, uniformity dominated China. But that's the Cultural Revolution. That was over. Now, actually, culture diversity, pluralism, is at least, I think, it's a value. Uh, so, again, that's the issue. That's the, we should pay attention. And uh, particularly, I, I actually uh, documented the, the leaders. I think that the next part, I mean, because in a year, there will be 20th Party Congress. And uh, the, a lot of leading candidates have a strong Shanghai background, including three rising stars. And Ding Xuexiang, Li Chang, and Li Xi, they either, you know, are born and um, and and uh, raised in Shanghai or uh, serve as a Shanghai top leader for many years. And uh, so, uh, also there's a, a next tier. There are a lot of them, right? And so, forty percent, as you mentioned, is not a small number. This is powerful standing. It's the most powerful things. And uh, also Han Zhen and Wang Funying, uh, two standing committees. They uh, not only come from Shanghai, but also study the same school that I attended, uh, East China Normal University. So, so, uh, so was, uh, I mean, Ambassador Cui Tiankai, you know. And, uh, of course, that, uh, there's, there's during cultural revolution that, uh, that school divided into two. But, uh, let's tell you, in that regard, even more impressive. I mean, my university is not famous for producing leaders, not like Tsinghua or Beida, but happen, I mean, these leaders, you know, they happen to be in, in the same school. It's a really, it's a teacher's, teacher's school. So that's a kind of a subculture have profound impact for these leaders. Great. Well, uh, one final question is about how historically it has been Shanghaiese running Shanghai. But now the top three leaders are not from Shanghai, top three leaders of Shanghai. What effect will that have on the dynamism you talk about, and the culture and economy of the city. Zhu Rongji has a, a very interesting uh, quote. He said that I use as a uh, the, the 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 epigraph uh, in my one of the chapter. He said not because Shanghai people are smart, but rather smart people uh, come to Shanghai. So those politically ambitious leaders, because of their connection with Xi Jinping, they serve as a leader in Shanghai. Someone even said that uh, some of them actually have married to Shandongese. You know, this is also an interesting phenomenon because the Shanghai leaders. But uh, it's interesting to know these uh, current uh, the, uh, leaders. But actually, Li Chang is from Zhejiang. It's very close. Uh, 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 and also the new mayor is also from Suzhou, right? I mean, uh, 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 you know, Gongzhen. So it, this is a very close areas, Zhejiang and Jiangsu and Shanghai. And also they, um, uh, really part of the uh, network. But important things is, you know, Xi Jinping's coalition, including Shanghai faction, because to a certain extent, Jiang Zemin and uh, Zheng Qinghong helped Xi Jinping to arrive at the top leadership position. But Xi Jinping's people also differ from the, the real, the core group of Shanghai gang. It's different. There's some tensions. But I think a compromise has been made, but they are a broad coalition. But also you see that uh, Xi Jinping's most important uh, protege, Ding Xuexiang, actually advanced his career from Shanghai. He likely will be a very, very powerful figure in the years to come. And also he, Xi Jinping certainly used uh, people like, uh, you know, really Renang and Wang Funying and Han Zheng, I just mentioned, originally from Shanghai. And also China's top diplomat, Yang Jiezi, also Shanghainese and etc. So the question is a good one. But uh, I will not go too far that these people are not, uh, I mean, there's some tight uh, connection with Shanghai. They're also from the very close areas of, of Shanghai. Some of uh, people, the senior leaders, actually also spend a lot of time um, the study uh, in Shanghai, etc. Yeah. But uh, uh, again, um, these, uh, we still yet to, yet to see uh, the future composition. But this is just the prediction. It uh, may or may not happen, but I think that uh, uh, it's fair to say Shanghai will play a very, very important 
very intriguing role in China's domestic and foreign policy. Great. Well, I think that's a nice uh, note to end on. Just want to thank you so much, Chung, for joining us on China Corner Office. And I encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of Middle Class Shanghai. It's an important and very readable book. Thank you, Chung. Thank you. Thank you.